We have a practice uh, that will be taking place this morning down in the children's ministry in Spark City, right before the teacher comes to share the word. And I think it's a good principle because it's teaching the kids to recognize that God's word is a gift to us. It's a gift to us, and when we have the opportunity to gather together and to be under God's word and under his influence, we need to receive that gift. So we have a practice that I'm going to ask you as their parents, grandparents, as their older generation within the church to do that with me this morning, and we're just going to ask God to bless his word. But as we do that, as we pray, I'm going to ask all of you just to have open hands. Just put your hands in front of you. Take whatever's out in your hands right now and just put your hands open as a physical symbol to God that we want to receive something for you this morning. We are ready, Lord, and we are asking that you will give us a gift of your word that will inspire us to follow you and to live as your disciples. Let's pray. Father, we sit here this morning as a congregation with our hands open, recognizing that you are a good father who gives the best gifts. And we thank you for your word. Thank you that we have your word, your will for our lives in a language that we can read, that we can have on so many devices and so many different versions. God, we are so blessed. Forgive us when we do not recognize the gift of your word to us. And so, Lord, we come to you this morning at this moment in our service, and we want to receive your word this morning. God, I have my hands open because I need to receive the power of your Holy Spirit to speak your word truthfully and accurately in a way that is honoring and glorifying to you. And so, God, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for the gift of your word. Help us now to listen and then to apply what you teach us today. And we pray this in Christ's name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. I almost said and all the kids said, but that was good. I didn't. Well, this morning we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that is found in Luke chapter 12. And when you turn to Luke chapter 12, what you'll find is Jesus in the midst of a large crowd. In fact, the Bible describes this crowd as many thousands of people had gathered around him. So large was this crowd that the scripture says people were trampling over one another. I mean, that's a pretty large crowd. Many thousands of people gathered at one place, so many that they were trampling on one another. Now, I don't know if any of you have been in a crowd that large. But I've had a couple of experiences that came back to my mind as I read that. One of the first ones, I can't remember how old I was, it's a little guy, but uh, we were attending a large outdoor evangelistic crusade at one of the soccer stadiums in Zimbabwe. And the, the stadiums were packed and the whole pitch in front was empty and the platform was at the far side of the soccer field. And at the end of the uh, preaching of God's word, an invitation was given out to all those who would want to come and receive Jesus Christ. And I remember as a child sitting there, it was something I'll never forget. Mass amounts of people just started to flood out of the stadium seating, and the soccer field just filled up shoulder to shoulder with people. It was incredible to see this movement of a mass crowd just all heading to the same location. The other instance that came to my mind was when I was in university out west in British Columbia, and uh, my two older brothers and myself, we were big CFL fans, and, and so living in BC, we were cheering for the BC Lions, and the one year, they actually were really good, and uh, they made it. I'm a big Argo fan now. They made it to the Grey Cup final, 
And not only that, Vancouver was hosting the Grey Cup final. And it was the first Grey Cup where there was a Canadian team playing. Remember for a couple years they experienced with bringing up some American teams? So they were in the Grey Cup final versus the Baltimore Stallions. So it was Canada, US, CFL versus American. It was awesome. So we sent my middle brother, I said, okay, you go to the mall, get in line at Ticketmaster and see if you can get us tickets. Well, he got us tickets and they were great tickets. And so we went to the Grey Cup and we enjoyed the game. Not only that, they actually won on a last-second field goal by Louis Pasaglia. If you're that old, you'll remember him. And uh, after that, though, was the experience of chaos. I mean, everyone trying to get out of BC Place. And if you've been to Vancouver, they don't have an underground subway. So for any of us who came from the lower mainland into the city for the game, we all have to file like sheep to this thing they call the SkyTrain which takes you from downtown Vancouver back out into the lower mainland. And all we did was simply just make sure we keep an eye on each other because all you could do was just this. And wherever the crowd moved, good luck resisting it. It's not going to happen. You just go where the crowd goes. Mass amounts of people. And if you've been in that situation, it can feel a little bit intense. It's a little bit of an electric type of atmosphere. This is what we find Jesus, where we find him in Luke chapter 12, in a crowd with thousands of people, so much so that they were trampling over one another. What I find interesting though, is Jesus begins to speak. In the midst of all this going on, Jesus begins to speak first to his disciples. First to his followers, you see the heart of Jesus. It was always about making disciples, always about taking every opportunity, even in the midst of chaos, to teach them something. And he begins to warn them and encourage them on a number of different things, which we'll just take a quick look at before we get to the passage we're going to focus on. First of all, he tells them, be on guard against the spread of the evil influence of the Pharisees' hypocrisy. Be on guard against the evil influence of the Pharisees' hypocrisy that they were spreading through their teaching and through their hypocritical behavior. Now you might wonder, well, why would he start to talk to them about that? Well, if you go back to chapter 11 and verses 37 to 44, you find an incredible story. And I was reading this to try and understand the context. A Pharisee had invited Jesus to dine with them. First of all, that doesn't happen. Okay, But Jesus accepted the invitation and went in to dine with the Pharisees, except he did something wrong. He didn't wash before dinner. So I figured, I guess I can't harp on my kids much anymore if they don't wash before dinner. If Jesus didn't do it, okay. So anyway, he goes to dinner with the Pharisees, and they get all upset because of his outward uncleanness by not washing before dinner. And Jesus, he just lays into them. He doesn't mix his words. He calls the Pharisees foolish people. He he says, all this outward righteousness that you appear to have on the outside looks really good. But in reality, he says to them, at lunch, remember he's the guest, your hearts are full of greed and wickedness. And then three different times he says, woe to you Pharisees, woe to you Pharisees, woe to you Pharisees. It was becoming increasingly obvious the differences between the teaching of Jesus related to his father's kingdom and how that was clashing with the Pharisees and the religious life that they were trying to promote and spread amongst the people. And it was so funny as I was reading this because you can almost hear Jesus saying, really, you're gonna talk to me about being unclean? Seriously. And then he just lays into them. How many of you have ever, ever had a student in a class in high school and college or university that just always had to have something to say? 
Doesn't matter, the professor's going on with the lecture, and sure enough, here it goes, a question or a comment. Well, during this lunch, there's that exact situation. In verse 45, while Jesus is just laying into the Pharisees, one of the experts of the law, it says, experts of the law were the scribes, those were the men who studied, interpreted, and taught all the written and oral laws. He chirped up. Sometimes it's better to just be quiet. All right, he chirped up and said, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Bad time to chirp up. And it's almost like Jesus internally just took another sigh and said, really? Well, let me tell you something. And three times, woe to you scribes, woe to you scribes, woe to you scribes for making life so difficult for people, and yet you're not even willing to lift a finger to help them. Jesus says of the Pharisees and their hypocritical life, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You see, God is never impressed with mere outward religious acts. God is searching for hearts that are bent towards loving him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. So chapter 11 ends with these two verses, 53 and 54. After lunch, when Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. So it is not a surprise that in the midst of this large crowd, as he begins to address his disciples, the first warning he gives them is against the Pharisees. Beware of them. Beware of the evil influence of the spread of their hypocrisy. He then goes on to say, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. We've just sung about that. Whom shall I fear? Jesus told his disciples, do not be afraid but does warn them who to fear. So he says, do not be afraid, but I will warn you who to fear. In verse four of chapter 12, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Man, fellow human beings can kill our bodies, but after that they can do no more. Just yesterday, a few of us were dialoguing with a couple named Ari and Sadat. They're from Turkey, and in fact, when we went there, maybe it's five years ago with a team, uh, we worked at a camp that they helped run, and then Ari and Sadat came and spent some time here watching how we do children's ministry, learning and taking back. Well, I got an email from him Friday night saying, I think I'm in the middle of a coup. Then yesterday, he was asking Kathy and Paul Powers to pray for them, and he was saying that last week at camp, every day rebels would be at the gate of that camp and were shooting their guns. This is where we were only five or six years ago. But I can tell you, Ari and Sadat know who to fear. They're not afraid of man. Because man can only destroy our bodies, but after that can do no more. So Jesus says to his disciples, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Don't be afraid of man. But here's who you should fear. Fear creator God who has the power and the authority to render ultimate judgment over your body and even your souls. This fear is not the same as being afraid. Rather, it is a worshipful, submissive, and reverent attitude towards God that influences every aspect of our lives, how we live it before him and others. I found it ironic that by fearing, we can actually become less afraid. By fearing, we can actually become less afraid, less 
anxious because as Pastor Steve said, to God, who we are to fear, we are more valuable to him than all of his creation. And if he takes such incredible care of even the most seemingly insignificant parts of his creation, like a sparrow falling to the ground, brothers and sisters, we can be confident in his care for you and for I. So he warns them of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He warns them then uh, to not be afraid, but here's who you should fear. And then he goes on to give them another encouragement and another warning about the future. He says in verse 8, I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. That is on Judgment Day, which you can read about in Matthew chapter 25, verses 21 to 34. What does acknowledge before others mean? Acknowledge is those who have personally confessed with their mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believed in their heart that God raised them from the dead. Those who are saved, saved from the penalty of their sin. Those who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Those who by grace welcome the gift of faith to believe and follow Jesus. To those of us who have had the privilege of God touching our hearts and giving us the gift of faith, we do not need to fear the future because we know we will be acknowledged by God and welcomed into eternity as his own. But he goes on to warn them, whoever disowns or denies me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. Now this disowning and this, desi- this denying is not a sin of ignorance. What he's talking about here is a deliberate, willful, settled hostility towards Christ, exemplified by the attitude and the actions of the Pharisees. And if you are here this morning and you have never personally received the gift of faith, you have never personally received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and accepted what he has done for you on the cross by living a sinless life and dying for you and then being raised three days later so that your sin can be removed, it is so important that you understand God loves you and he wants to give you that gift of faith this morning so that you might receive him, you might before man acknowledge God So that one day when you come face to face with God, he will acknowledge you before the angels. Therefore, as Christ's disciples, as Christ's followers, take heart because we will be acknowledged and welcomed on judgment day. And when we face trials and persecutions like Ari and Sadat are facing right now, or like Dave and Tina are facing in Russia, do not panic. The Bible says that his spirit will equip us to be able to handle every situation. You know, I find it so interesting that a leader of a nation is going to revoke the freedom of religion. We know what the Bible says, that he will build his church and nothing will be able to stand against it. You look at other nations in the world that have decided through their power and through their wisdom, we're going to shut down religion. His church is growing more in those nations than in our nation where we have freedom to worship. God is powerful. He has a plan that we cannot fully see or understand, but he has a work, and he's equipping those within those nations. So we have this large crowd, people trampling on each other. We have Jesus in the midst of that, addressing his disciples, giving them warnings and encouragements, and all of a sudden then, he's interrupted. And in verse 13 you read, it says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. What a random question. 
in the middle of this whole amazing scene where Jesus is teaching his disciples how to follow him, and someone, as if it's like they haven't even been listening to anything he's been saying, chirps up and says, hey, tell my brother to share the inheritance. Bizarre. That's what every commentary says. No, I don't know. Just, that's just bizarre. Look how Jesus replied in verse 14. Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Now, we know from Scripture in the book of Deuteronomy, it teaches us that the right of the firstborn was to receive a double portion of the inheritance. And perhaps this brother wanted an equal share. We don't know. Scripture doesn't say. But in any case, notice Jesus' response. Jesus did not seem too concerned about the man's implied injustice, and as a result, refused the man's request to settle his family dispute. Wow. Jesus took care of that one real quick. One verse, no. But there was enough concern, this is what caught my attention, there was enough concern with the content of the man's request, but I think even so much more perhaps with the manner in which he just rudely shouted out and said, hey, teacher, tell my brother to give me half the inheritance, divide the inheritance. There was something about the content of his request and perhaps the manner in which he asked that prompted Jesus to turn his attention from that man back to his disciples Re-engaged them in conversation, and what do you think he gave them? Another warning. Another warning, and this is where we're going to spend time this morning. He said to them in verse 15, watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Warning after warning after warning. Interrupted. No. Goes back to his disciples Warning, watch out, be on guard against, not some, not a little bit, all kinds of greed, for life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Sounds just like the culture we live in, doesn't it? Absolutely not. It sounds opposite to the culture we live in. And our culture preaches every day through all kinds of media and advertising that life, meaningful, satisfying life, absolutely does consist in an abundance of possessions. We even have TV shows that drive this worldview home into our hearts and into our mind and into the hearts and minds of our kids in the form of entertainment. Storage wars, the hoarders, fun entertainment, don't get me wrong. I watch them sometimes, it's, it's entertaining. But brothers and sisters, what we need to be careful of is we can become influenced by the philosophy of life and can get caught up in the trap of feeling that we need to accumulate more and more and more. Jesus said, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And before we realize it, our identity, security, fulfillment, joy, purpose becomes directly linked to what we possess rather than directly linked to who possesses us. We are more caught up, our identity and our security and our peace in what we possess, rather than being linked to who possesses us. 1 Peter 1.21, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 says, Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts and things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. 
For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life. Do you understand that? Our life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Christ is our life. And when he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so to further highlight the significance of this warning, he tells them a parable of a certain rich man. Will you read with me the text beginning in verse 16? After warning them, he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. I want to take a look quickly this morning at three things we need to do to fight the temptation of accumulation. Three things we need to do to fight the temptation of accumulation because, brothers and sisters, possessions can be a threat to our spiritual growth. I love the way God helps stir up a sermon within me. And a lot of times, he talks to me in my head when I'm walking. And I was walking this week, and I was, I was trying to think of a title for the sermon. And I thought, title for the sermon. And all of a sudden, I took a step, and in my mind comes temptation of accumulation. The temptation of accumulation. I thought, man, that sounds good. It even rhymes. The temptation of accumulation. So I got so excited, but there was only one problem. I said, man, if I was only Harley Johnson. If I was only Harley, stand up so people understand the context of what I'm going to say. This is Harley Johnson, in case you don't know him, one of our deacons. Thank you, Harley. I thought, man, if Harley was preaching this, mm -mm -mm, that's a title Harley would preach. So I walked into my door, and this is how it went. Children, children, gather in. You got to fight the temptation of accumulation. Because you need to watch out. You need to be on guard against all kinds of greed. Because life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. I walked into a living room, one kid was on his iPod, the other kid was watching TV, Jen was in the kitchen, she walks out like this, the one kid starts to take the earplug out of their head, and I start to see the same reaction as you, they start to smile, they start to laugh. God blessed that sermon so much in my house church, one of them said to me, Dad, you preach like that on Sunday, I'll take you to Bass Pro, you can buy whatever you want. <laughs> So to fight the temptation of accumulation, I said, no, I'm going to preach like a white man from Oshawa. <laughs> I only preach like Harley in my home. So we need to ask God to help us. Help us with three things that I believe we need to do to fight the temptation of accumulation. First of all, we need to ask him to help us change the way we naturally think and talk. We need to ask God to help us in this battle to fight against all kinds of greed. We need to ask him to help us change the way we naturally think and talk. Look at verse 17, how this rich man spoke. He thought to himself, what shall 
I do? What shall I do with this abundant harvest of crops? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus. You get the point. This man is so full of himself and greed. But I wonder how many of us have spoke naturally very similar to this example. James 4.13 gives a very clear warning. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go do this to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? This is an incredible statement. When I read this, I thought of, you know the little spray bottle you have by the barbecue, or at least I have by my barbecue? You spray that, and it's gone. That's what it says here. Why talk so arrogant about what you're going to do? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, this is how we're supposed to talk now, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. You see, the problem here, having an abundant harvest, which this man gained, not in an immoral way. He had an abundant harvest. That's what we hear from Scripture. He didn't do anything wrong to gain that. Having that abundant harvest was not the problem. The solution he thought up by himself is the bigger issue because it reflects his heart. He was full of greed and was totally absorbed with himself. In the process, you read it, in the process of wanting to quench his desire for more, what did he do? He ended up spending more time, more energy, and more money tearing down what had previously met his needs to spend more time, more energy, more money simply to satisfy his hunger for greed and having more. Now, what I don't believe Christ is condoning here, and I don't want you to misunderstand me, Christ is not condoning, condoning using the wisdom he gives us to be effective stewards of his blessings in our lives. Sometimes it is necessary to make adjustments. Sometimes it is necessary to spend extra time, extra energy, and extra money to better be able to manage and distribute his blessings with others. For example, the 301 campus. I wish you could have been here and seen what was going on there, not only all week, but especially in particular what impressed me and encouraged me was during the junior high camp. We used to have to cap the number of kids we could house here for VBS on this campus in order that we had enough room for all the age groups. It's never a, a great thing when you have to say, no, we can't take any more kids, right? And so I remember when Pastor Dwayne and Brett started the junior high VBS and we used to have a tent that we'd rent on the backyard of the house. That's how small the group was. Praise God, because through his generosity, we were able to invest some more money, some more energy, some more time in purchasing another campus that, that lifted the restriction from having to say no to the number of kids that can come here. And praise God, by his goodness, it allowed us to manage and steward over 150 in grades 6, 7, and 8s on a campus over there. So it's not a problem if we have to do it. 
But what is our motivation for doing it? And in this case, this parable, the true motivation within the rich man's heart was brought to light through his thoughts and actions. And it revealed that he was only interested in bettering his own life. The essence of greed is keeping what resources God brings our way for ourselves with no concern or a sense of responsibility for others. Romans 12, 2 says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the way you think, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The way we think will influence how we feel in our heart, which will guide our talk and our actions. Being on guard requires it to be a continual process. It's not a single event. It's a call to constant vigilance. We must daily fight our natural way of thinking and talking and practice thinking and talking God's ways. And this happened to me yesterday. God will test you on these things. And yesterday we had the privilege of going and spending the day in Oakville. Jason had a double header uh, in Oakville, and yes, Oshawa beat Oakville two times yesterday, which was wonderful. So we spent the day out there, and the parents from the Oakville baseball team were so generous. They provided pizza lunch for both teams, Gatorade, all the water you can drink. My wife being the great wife she is, had packed a lunch, so Jen and Daryl and I were sitting over here in the shade, and we were watching this parade of boys going and eating the yummy pizza that had walked right past us and was now over there, which we weren't invited to because it was for the players. And so I was thankful for my lunch, and we were eating there, and all of a sudden this lady comes over and says, hey, the boys have ate their full. There's lots of pizza there. Will you like some? Well, it didn't take me two seconds. <laughs> but I, and this is not a word of a lie. I stood up and I said, that's got to taste better than this rice cake, right? Because that's what I was feeding on. So, of course, being a good dad, I led my father over to the pizza table, and we got some pizza, and we enjoyed the pizza. They were so generous. The second game started, she came over and she said, hey, there's more there. If you'd like to take some for the ride home, there's Gatorade there. Like the first time, I was humble, and I just took water. When I was invited back a second time, I took Gatorade, right? So generous. Second game ends. We're getting ready to go. My van's parked here. There's another van parked here. I get out my van to put some stuff in the, in the back, and I hear her engine, this lady who's been so generous to us going You know what the natural first thing that came to my mind was? Oh man, does this mean I gotta help her? Because I heard sometimes if you jump your vehicle with another vehicle, something can mess up stuff, and I started to respond to someone's need the way I naturally think. And God didn't let me off the hook because she then came up to me, this generous lady who had been so generous to us all day, and she came up to me and she said, I have jumpers. Do you think you could pull your van up and help jump my vehicle? You see, God was testing me in the little things about how I think and how I respond. But I come before you as one of your pastors and say, we're all in this battle together. It is a daily battle to be on guard, to fight against the natural way we think and talk. By God's grace, we got our van started. I said, do not turn it off till you get home. Have a great weekend. There's nothing wrong with what God blesses us with. The second point is, though, it's how we naturally want to live and use our resources. 
I will say to myself, he said, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. What drove him to spend extra time, energy, and money to store up all his crops was the life he wanted to live. What is the life you're chasing? What is the life you want to live? He was chasing a life that would allow him to satisfy his wants, his pleasures, his agenda. Second note, there is nothing wrong in enjoying the many blessings God generously and graciously gives us. The problem is when our personal enjoyment of those blessings becomes the most important thing we live for. There's nothing wrong with enjoying God's generosity and his graciousness to us. But it's when our enjoyment of those becomes the most important thing we live for. You see, the possessions and the comfort pursued by this rich man led him to neglect God. Nowhere in there did you hear him say anything, I should ask God what I should do. It caused him to neglect the pursuit of God so that he poorly uses the resources he had received. And God calls this way of living foolish. He called the man in verse 20, you fool. An Old Testament term describing someone who either acts without God or acts without wisdom in a destructive way. This man was acting without God and without wisdom, and his response to the abundant crop he had been given was simply to become more self-absorbed, more self-centered, more self-reliant. Jesus was not condemning his wealth, but his use of it. We must ask God to change the way we not only think and talk, but we must ask him to change the way we want to live and use resources. Romans 5, verse 5 and 8 says, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. And then he gives them the third warning. Here's what we must do to fight the temptation of accumulation. We must ask God to change what it is we are preparing for. We must ask him to change what it is we are preparing for. The rich young ruler was only interested in investing in himself, the here and now, in this life. And when we live as the world lives for the here and now, we will waste so much time. I have wasted, personally, so much time, energy, and money in things that are temporary. Things that we will sacrifice so much for just to have. Stuff that after we are gone, we have no personal control over. Jesus said in verse 20, then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? See, this man needed to change what he was preparing for. He was simply only preparing for himself. And this is the sad and sobering end to every life that simply lives to accumulate. Verse 21 says this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. I pray that God will penetrate that last statement in our hearts and our minds, that people who identify themselves with this local representation of God's body throughout our community, people will say of us, those people were rich towards God. They were so rich towards God. They were not totally self-absorbed and invested in only what they're doing, but they cared about us as a community. They shared with the resources that they had, and they were rich towards God. 
We need to ask God to change what we are preparing for. There is nothing wrong in making sure that you are looking after your family well and that by God's grace you're providing. I'm not saying don't have any plans. I'm just saying maybe the account needs to be balanced. Maybe we need to become richer towards God and we need to take some away towards ourselves. Responding to life and blessing in a way that he desires, in a way that honors him through service and compassion. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves. Here's what to prepare for. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And in this parable, unfortunately, the rich man became the object of his worship. He himself became the object of his worship. He gave himself the best of his time, the best of his energy, and the best of his resources. Jesus was speaking to his disciples. If by God's grace you have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are a disciple. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are a worshiper first of God. Therefore, we should be giving the best of our time, the best of our energy, and the best of our resources to God for his purpose and the expansion of his kingdom, not simply for our purpose and the expansion of our kingdom. We are worshipers of God. And if we need to build bigger barns, let's build them. But it should only be to better steward and distribute his goodness towards others more effectively. So brothers and sisters, to fight the temptation of accumulation, we need to ask God through his power. This is not a way that you can live without the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not natural. That's why we need the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we need to ask God through the power of the Holy Spirit when it comes to fighting the temptation of accumulation to change the way we think and talk think before you speak this week. Change the way we live and use our resources and change what we are preparing for. Are you preparing only for yourselves or are you preparing for others and eternity? This thought went through my head as I was preparing to speak today. What if at every single one of our funerals, a spreadsheet was projected on the big screen behind reflecting an audit done of all the investments, time, energy, resources, made over the course of our lives, I wonder who it would show we were rich towards. Ourselves or God? Watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed, for life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Christ was addressing his disciples that morning. And if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are a follower. My encouragement today is let's watch out. Let's be on guard against all kinds of greed because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Rather, it consists in knowing and experiencing the grace and mercy of God and the provision of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ and you would like to experience life 
and peace, then I encourage you to come and talk to us afterwards. We'd love to introduce you to God through his son, Jesus Christ. God is able to bless us abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that we need, we will abound in every good work. Father, thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you that you never leave leave us nor forsake us. Thank you for giving us this warning this morning because God, this is a battle that we must fight in North America. And I pray that we would lead well. I pray God that through your power and through your strength that we'll make sure and give you all the glory, those in our family, in our communities, in our school, in our neighborhoods, God, they will see through our generosity, your goodness. And that at the end of it all, Father, they will come to know you. Help us to invest in things that are eternal, not in things that are temporary. Help us to fight a good fight through your power. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.